Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Samuel 21, and we're going to be continuing in the life of David, uh, probably for the, this month. Um, as you know, Pastor Rogers in uh, James, were you there this morning? Yeah, yeah the, one, the ones of you that have a little blood on you, yeah, you were there this morning. The ones that, that weren't, you won't be there. 11 o'clock, fabulous message. So we're not going to be, in the handout you've been given, you'll notice it's James and Galatians. We're not going to be doing James, obviously, Pastor Rogers, and that we're going to be doing the a book of Galatians, but we're going to try and stay in Samuel through the end of this month. So how many of you heard the phrase, don't make promises that you can't keep? Yeah, we all make promises, but have you noticed that some of them are easier to keep than others? In marriage, we stand up and we audaciously promise to love and to cherish till death do us part. And sometimes we think death has to come early if we're going to keep that promise, right? In, in our work, we promise to show up on time and do an honest day's work. When we are a witness in the court of law, we promise to do what? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When we schedule a lunch date, we promise to meet somebody at a specific time at a certain location, right? When you buy a house or a car, you sign a contract that says, I promise to pay so much a month for so many months, yeah, the rest of your life. <laughs> I saw a bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, right? That's a sign of servitude. When we come to Christ, we promise that we're going to follow Jesus as long as we live, right? Matter of fact, it'd be impossible for society to function without promises. The real problem is not making the promises. The real problem is keeping the promises we've already made. Norman Vincent Peale once said, I like this. Promises are like crying babies in a theater. They should be carried out at once. <laughs> yeah. 2 Samuel 21 today highlights a very central truth. The God of the Bible is a promise-keeping God. And he expects his children to keep their promises as well. As a matter of fact, in Numbers 30, verse 1 and 2... God told Moses in the Mosaic Covenant, this is the word which the Lord has commanded, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to how much? All that proceeds out of his mouth. See, a promise is a moral obligation. A promise is a debt that you and I have chosen to incur. When we make a promise, we're obligating ourselves. William McKenzie once said, The promises of yesterday are the taxes of today. You ever notice some people have trouble paying their taxes, right? Promise breaking is so serious because it's deceit. It's lying. Promise breaking is saying one thing and doing another. 
Matter of fact, God takes promise breaking so seriously that he disciplines those who don't perform what they are promised. Even more significant, we're going to find out in this chapter, God holds the nation of Israel accountable to uphold the promises that their ancestors had made. Very interesting. Let's take a look at the narrative. 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, three consecutive years. And David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, the timeline on this event, of course, takes place very, very late in the book. 2 Samuel, we're near the end of this book, but it actually took place about 15 years after Saul's death. See, David was crowned king at about 1011 B.C. Uh, he was 30 years old and was crowned king over Judah. And at, when he was crowned king just before that, Saul and Jonathan were killed at Mount Gilboa by the Philistines. And when that event occurred, Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth, right, who was uh, crippled. He was just five years old. You remember his nurse grabbed him and tried to get him away from the Philistines. He was the heir of Saul and Jonathan, so he would be killed. So his nurse grabbed him, ran with him, and dropped him. Probably broke both ankles, both arches, and... Uh, uh, he became a cripple for life. And years later, we talked about a few months ago, when David found Mephibosheth, uh, he was hiding out in a place called Lodibar, which means no pasture. And when David brought him into the palace, he, Mephibosheth had a son of his own named Micah. You want to know where that name in the Bible came from? That's where it came from. Micah is Mephibosheth's son. So Mephibosheth was about five years old when David was crowned king. And when David got to Mephibosheth and brought him back into the palace, Mephibosheth was probably about 20. So David's been king about 15 years, which means this famine probably occurred about 996 B.C., somewhere in there, about 15 years after David was crowned king. So David's about 45 years old when this famine takes place. And it says there was a famine for three years, year after year, three consecutive years. Verse 2, David called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, you know, who are the Gibeonites? So in parentheses in verse 2, your Bible will say, Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. Covenant is a promise. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Sometimes the things in parentheses are really, really important. Well, this is one of those parentheses that's really, really important. Take sin seriously because its toxic effects can last for generations. Take sin seriously because its toxic effects can last for generations. A little perspective. Most of us have never experienced a famine unless you're fasting on Weight Watchers, Nutrisystems, or something, and you're trying to lose weight, right? Most of us have never experienced an involuntary famine. Most of recorded history, famines were very predictable. I mean, they didn't occur predictably, but they were very routine. There were famines quite often. Irrigation was limited. You depended on the rainfall. All food was grown and eaten locally. You didn't have trucks and trains to transport food from point A to point B, so you grew it and you ate it in your given location. If the rains didn't fall, crops didn't grow, you didn't eat. So no rain was a very big deal. And three consecutive years of famine would have been devastating. You could probably explain, you know, one or two years of famine. Well, you know, the 
weather is a little different, etc. But three years in a row, David starts to ask himself, ah, this may be divine judgment, let's pray about it. Now, the rainfall in Palestine, in the land of Canaan, and the upper highlands occurs about 25 inches a year, and that's all from the Mediterranean Sea. When you have westerly winds blowing from the Mediterranean Sea over the land, you get rain. That occurs until about March, April, and then you get rain from the desert, from the Jordan side, and you don't get any rain. Okay? That's in the highlands. When you get down to Jerusalem and below, you maybe get five, six inches of rain a year, so they didn't have a lot of rain to start with. So if you don't have any rain, no crops, no growth, and people are starving. So David prays. says, God, we've got this famine. What's going on? And God tells him that this famine is God's discipline. And we know that God always disciplines the disobedient, so that's not surprising. What is surprising is God sent a famine on the land, not for a sin that David has committed but for a sin that his predecessor, Saul, has committed maybe 20 years before, maybe 30 years before. And, you know, to us that doesn't seem really fair. Why should I suffer for the sins of someone who sinned earlier? But it's important to understand that sin has multi-generational consequences. You and I live with the consequences of our parents' choices, right? Yes, and our grandparents' choices. And your children have already talked to me and told me that they're living with the consequences of your choices. And your grandchildren will call me up within a few years and say, I can't believe grandpa, grandma. I mean, that's the nature of how life works. We make choices and there's consequences. So God had warned Israel in the Ten Commandments. He said, sin today can last for how many generations? To the third and the fourth generation, right? Exodus 20 verse 5. So when a leader sins, whether that leader is a political leader, a pastor, a CEO, or a parent, or a grandparent, you're a leader, everyone around that leader also suffers, sometimes for generations. See, one of the things about sin is it's very infectious. You cannot quarantine sin. You cannot put it in a box and say, we're going to isolate this sin. Sin is like a spider web. When you touch one part of the web, you know, all the rest of the web vibrates, right? Sin is like a tsunami. A tsunami is usually triggered by an earthquake deep underwater, and many times it's hundreds of miles offshore. And when that earth moves underwater, it displaces the ocean water, and it sets up a devastating tsunami that shows up on the shore sometimes 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 hours later. And tsunamis sometimes take years and decades to recover from. So Saul, in this chapter, has massacred a chunk of the, of the people group called the Gibeonites. And he creates this moral earthquake that sets up a tsunami of suffering for the next generation, which is David, right? So we're going to take a look at a map of Israel and Gibeon. Gibeon is just north of Jerusalem, not too far away. And when Israel, the first time we see Gibeon talked about, Israel crosses the Jordan River from the east to the west in about 1405 under Joshua, right? 1405 B.C., Moses is dead, and they come across, and they land in Canaan, and they come across a group of people called the Gibeonites. They live in this city. 
Joshua 9 gives us the narrative. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read quite a lot of Joshua 9, beginning at verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, which means he's wiped them out, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provisions was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, which is only about three days away from Gibeon, and they said to Joshua in the midst of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore, make a covenant of peace with us. And the men of Israel said to them, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? And they said, we are servants of Shrek and have come from a country far, far away, right? That's Brad's translation. It does say a very far country, right? right? So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, that was to see if you're awake, and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Now, if you want to underline a verse in Joshua, that would be a good one, Joshua uh, 9, verse 14. Did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Major error in judgment. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. That's made a promise. Verse 16, and it came up at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they were living within their land. Verse 19, but all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have, by the way, the, the congregation wanted to kill them. The leader said, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them so that wrath will not be on us for the oath we swore to them. Here's the principle. Pray before you promise. Because God punishes promise makers. Pray before you promise because God punishes promise makers. Israel crosses over the Jordan River into the promised land, and God had commanded them, I want you to destroy all the tribes living inside the land of Canaan. The Canaanites were extraordinarily wicked. The gross immorality was just beyond comprehension. They were engaged in temple prostitution, child sacrifice. The perversion was just amazing. The violence, slave trafficking, I mean, it was a wicked, wicked place. And God had given them 400 years to repent. They refused to repent, and it had gotten worse and worse and worse. So here's something to remember. Don't ever confuse God's patience with tolerance. Don't ever confuse God's patience with tolerance. Just because God is patient with sinners, you and me, doesn't mean he's tolerant of sin. He's very intolerant of sin, even though he loves sinners. God hates all sin all the time, always has, always will. I, the Lord, do not change. I hate wickedness. Sooner or later, even 400 years later, God will judge sin, and that's what we're going to see here. So Joshua and the Israelites move into the land, and they come across the Canaanites, and the Canaanites are terrified. They've seen Jericho and Ai. They've seen Israel destroy them with God's help. They know that God is fighting on Israel's side. They know that God has promised the land of Canaan to Israel. Matter of fact, they've been watching them come across the desert from Egypt. 
They've heard about all the miracles in Egypt, and they are absolutely terrified. They know if they fight against Israel, they're going to die. But they also know that God has said, you can make peace with any tribe living outside the land. If there's a people group living outside the land of Canaan, you can make peace with them. So the Gibeonites aren't stupid. They say, we have got to trick the Israelites into believing that we come from the land of Shrek, far, far away, right? And then we'll make peace with them and they won't kill us. So they're going to deceive Israel into believing that they come far, far away. Actually, they were only about three days journey away. They were like really, really close to uh, Israel. So they put in this elaborate stage play to deceive Israel. They come into camp and they're wearing worn out clothes and worn out sandals and, you know, worn out wineskins and the food is moldy and etc. So this is a big stage play to try and deceive Israel. And they're trying to convince them that we live a long ways away. And look, when we left home, this bread was fresh and the clothes were new and it's been such a long journey, it's all worn out. Joshua and the leaders of Israel listen to their story and they see their moldy bread, but... They don't think they need to pray about it, right? They trust in what they see more than in what God might say. They probably thought, gosh, it's obvious that these people live far outside the land, so we don't need to pray about this. Have you ever run across situations in your life where you didn't pray because you thought it was obvious? I mean, why would you pray about this? I mean, it's pretty clear, right? I can figure this out. This is a no-brainer. Here's a clue. Anytime you think you don't need to pray about it, you are being set up. You are probably walking into an ambush, a spiritual ambush. There is no situation in life where I would not benefit from the counsel of the Lord. And we go, well, yeah, Brad, you, we understand. But we have IQ points that you don't have. I get that. There is no situation in life that none of us would not benefit from the counsel of the Lord. Always, always, always. So Israel doesn't pray, but they do promise. They make a promise without prayer, and they swear an oath in the name of the Lord to let these Gibeonites live. Three days later, they found out they'd been lied to, and now they're hot. I mean, the nation of Israel, the congregation wants to go take them out. You know, kill them all. But they can't because they've sworn to them in the name of the Lord to let them live. And you would think that God would say, well, you got tricked into giving your word. It was fraudulent, right? I mean, you got deceived into giving your word, so I'm going to let you break your covenant. Is that what God said? No. He said, when you swear an oath in the name of the Lord, you're obligating yourself to perform it. No matter what, you're calling God himself as your witness. Here's why that's so significant. Israel represented God. How Israel behaved revealed the character of God to a watching world. So if Israel broke their promises, the world would say, your God must be like you. If you're a promise breaker, your God must be a promise breaker too because you say you worship him, right? So it's deceiving other people about the character of God when you don't behave like God behaves. Now today, as God's children, are we supposed to behave like God behaves? 
Aha. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. We're family. 5 verse 1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. So you and I, who know Jesus, are called to behave like Jesus behaves because we represent him. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives on this planet. So Saul broke Israel's promise to the Gibeonites. They said, we swear an oath we're going to let you live. Saul, 400 years later, tried to kill him. And he was not acting like God acts because God always keeps his word and God doesn't kill innocent people. What's truly sobering, I guess, about this passage is God held Israel accountable to keep a promise that somebody else made 400 years ago. I don't even know if you and I know our relatives 400 years ago. I mean, if they made a promise and we're saying, well, they made the promise, why am I obligated to keep that? Well, this was a national promise before God and before another people group that they were going to keep their word and they didn't do it. What's really important to understand is that the passage of time does not erase the effects of sin. The passage of time does not affect the race, and it also doesn't erase God's commitment to deal with sin. It's been 400 years since Joshua, and Israel made a promise not to kill the Gibeonites. Saul tried to kill them, and God doesn't forget sin until it's paid for. Verse 3, David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Here's the principle. How you treat others impacts your own relationship with God. How you treat others impacts your own relationship with God. So King David, interesting, he's pretty humble. He's the king and he goes to these people and he says, what should I do for you? How can I make our relationship right? How can I make this wrong right? See, Saul's sin has not only destroyed the relationship with Israel and the Gibeonites, Saul's sin has separated Israel from God. And you would say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. Saul's sin is between him and God. What does it have to do with the nation? If the nation made a promise and swore an oath, and their leader now breaks that oath, the nation's accountable and suffers the consequences. And you say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. That's why we need to be very, very, very careful before we make promises. Because when those promises get broke, innocent people suffer. Yes? We all know cases, lots of cases, divorces. I mean, there's a hundred different examples. When promises are broken, people suffer. Nationally, personally, maritally, everything else. So... The Gibeonites have been praying to God, crying out to God, because Saul tried to massacre them, literally. And God is now judging Israel for the sin of Saul. David understands that for Israel's relationship with God to be made right, Israel's relationship with the Gibeonites has to be made right too. One of the passages that has always struck me, Matthew 5, 23-24, Jesus is talking to the apostles on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says... Um, he says, if you come to worship God, you go to the temple, you go to church, right? You come to worship God and you're going to sing and praise and go to class and blah, blah, blah. And you're in the middle of the service and you remember that you have a beef with your brother or sister. 
There's unfinished business between you and a brother or sister. He says, walk out of the service. Don't come talk to me. Walk out of the service. Go to your brother or sister and reconcile your relationship. And reconcile it before you come back and worship me. Don't come and worship me and say, God, I love you, but Joe over here, I got a beef with. He says, you go take care of your beef with Joe. First, then you come back, present your offering, etc., etc. You know, church might have a lot fewer people in it if we practice that every Sunday, right? He says, only after you reconcile with your brother are you free to come and worship God. 1 John 4 says what? You cannot love God and hate your brother. Your relationship with God depends on your relationship with your brother or sister. So we say, well, I have a relationship with Jesus, and I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, but boy, you know that person over there? Can't stand him. Don't have a relationship. It's broken, and I'm okay with it being broken. They deserve to have it broken, right? God says, no. You are telling the world that I am a God of love. You are telling the world that I can transform you, that I have transformed you, and I am not a God of hate. I am a God of love, and you're hating. You're misrepresenting me. You're lying about me. You're telling people Jesus saves and loves everybody, but you don't love your brother. Deal with it. Repent. Make that relationship right. So David wants to make the relationship right with the Gibeonites so that Israel's relationship with God can be made right. So he wants to make atonement. And that word atonement is, it's really, it, it, it's a state of harmony between God and between people a state of harmony. And in order for that harmony to occur, for the reconciliation to occur, the sin that caused the separation has got to be paid for, right? Sin always has to be paid for. So atonement really means I've got to satisfy somebody who's been wronged and I need to remove the cause of that sin. So David is wanting to help the Gibeonites, this people group that's been murdered, part of them. He wants to make up for the wrong that's done to them. And he cannot satisfy them until he removes the cause of their injustice. So he says, what can I do for you? Now these next verses are going to be hard to hear. Fair warning. Verse 4. The Gibeonites say to David, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David says, I will do whatever you say. Now when a king says you got a blank check, that's pretty good. So they say to the king, the man who consumed us, Saul, and who planned to eliminate, to exterminate, exterminate us from remaining with any border in Israel, here's the hard verse to say, let seven men from his sons be given to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And David said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. Here's the principle. The debt of sin must be paid in order for justice to be done. The debt of sin must be paid in order for justice to be done. Either you accept Jesus' payment for your sins or you pay the debt yourself. Now, the Gibeonites have been sinned against. Paul tried to massacre, I mean, Saul tried to massacre them. 
He didn't get away with all of it, but he killed a chunk of them. And the Gibeonites say, you can't pay for those lives with money. David, don't bother giving us money. That's not going to make it right. Some of our family members were killed by your predecessor, and money's not going to pay for that. They also tell him, look, we're a foreign people in your land. We're aliens. We're non-Israelites. We don't have any legal standing. We can't put anybody to death, right? We're living inside Saul's own tribe, the Benjamites, and we're wondering if Saul wanted to kill us so he could take our land and give it to his family. But there's no atonement in the sense that you can pay for it. And by the way, this is not atonement in the sense that Jesus paid for our sins. This is not atonement and in the sense that the innocent's dying for the guilty. When the Gibeonites say, give us seven of his sons and we're going to hang them, they're talking about the law of retaliation. That's lex talionis. It's the law of equivalent retaliation. You know what that is in the generic? What goes around comes around exactly as it went around. It's the guilty getting exactly what they deserve. How many of you ever watch YouTube? There is a little interesting series on there called Instant Karma. Karma. It's people getting what they got coming instantly. Somebody does something, they get whacked. I just ran across it the other day and I thought, whoa. Instant karma. It's what goes around, comes around within five seconds. Right? I was watching it just interesting and there's this car driving down the road and they've got the camera on, their phone camera on, and the car in front of them spins out two spins and winds up in the ditch. And there's a car full of guys, and they are laughing, going, what a stupid driver. And the camera's over here looking at the car that's in the ditch, and they plow into the guy in front of them. Instant karma. You yell at somebody else for being a stupid driver, and you were in the car in front of you. You've all seen this happen, right? <laughs> Getting what you've got coming instantly. Now, this law of retaliation is not the law of love that we live into with Jesus. This is... Deuteronomy 19.21 Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. If you put out somebody's eye, they put out your eye. If you knocked out their tooth, they knocked out your tooth. If you're out working in the field, you cut off their foot, they cut off your foot. It is exact retribution. There's no grace, no mercy here. It is just payback, precisely. So the Gibeonites are saying, he killed us, we're going to kill some of his family members. You give us seven members of his sons. These are Saul's sons or grandsons. Of course, David said, well, I already swore to protect Mephibosheth, so I can't give them to him. And the Gibeonites say, we're going to hang them before the Lord. Here's what's interesting. The Gibeonites knew that Saul's murder of them had violated God's justice. They knew that God's justice had to be satisfied for the rain to begin to fall because God had withheld the rain as an act of judgment. And their plan was to sacrifice Saul's son as payment for Saul's sins. They were going to leave the bodies in the open air until God brought the rains. Because when the rains come, that would indicate that God is now satisfied with his sacrifice and we now have rain again. 
Remember, that God had commanded in Numbers 35, 33. <clears throat> you want to know how God feels about murder? This is it. Blood, he's talking about innocent blood, pollutes the land. And no expiation can be made for the land, for the blood, the innocent blood that is shed, except the shedding of the blood of the guilty. Right? God viewed murder as moral filth that had to be cleansed from the land, and the only acceptable way to purify the land was to execute the murderer. Now, this is called paying for your own sins, isn't it? You murder somebody, we take your life. Remember, you and I don't live in this world. This is before Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. This is everybody is accountable to pay for their own sins. That's what was going on here. And that's why we can sing Amazing Grace, because it is unbelievably amazing that we who deserve to die for our sins don't have to. But that God gives us what we do not deserve. That's what grace is. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, which is death. And grace is giving us what we do not deserve, which is life. Normally, the law was the guilty pay. Under Christianity with Jesus Christ, the innocent paid. And you say, well, that's not very fair. That Jesus, the innocent, would die in our place, the guilty. Anytime you ever had your children say, it's not fair. Welcome to life. Right? Life is not fair. And it especially wasn't fair for Jesus. He wasn't under any obligation to die. He did it because he loved us. He laid down his life in our place, but this is before he came. And so the Gibeonites are saying, Saul's family tried to kill us. The only way to pay that debt is they have to die for what they did. Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody seen that movie? Tevia is one of my favorite characters. Someone was talking about the law of Lex Talionis, and he said, you know, if you actually applied that law, everybody would be blind and toothless. We all would be, because we've all screwed up, right? And if every time you screwed up, someone took a tooth or an eye, we'd be blind and toothless. So the king says to the Gibeonites, I'll do what you ask, verse 8. So the king took the two sons of Rizbah, the daughter of Aya, Armoni and Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul, Saul's two sons by Rizpah, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehatholite. These are wonderful names that you can name your grandchildren. <laughs> Verse 9. So he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Rizpah is a concubine of Saul. This is kind of like a, a second-class spouse, right? So Saul may have had more than one second-class spouse, but this woman, Rizpah, bore him two sons, one of which was named Mephibosheth, and I don't know whether Jonathan named his own son Mephibosheth after this one, but there's actually two Mephibosheths in Scripture. Merab was Saul's daughter, and she had borne five sons. So David took all seven of them and gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites for justice. Must have been difficult for David to do. 
However, we need to understand, this is not the innocent dying for the guilty. It's extremely, as a matter of fact, it's almost certain that all seven of these sons and grandsons had participated with Saul in the murders of the Gibeonites. They were like criminals in World War II, war criminals that were prosecuted, convicted, and executed. You know why we know this? The Mosaic law prohibited sons to be executed for the sins of their fathers. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for their own sin. How would you like to live in a world like that? If you could be put to death for your own sin, the room would not have as many people in it. Right? It would be empty. That's right. I would be the first one to go, brother. So these seven sons were obviously accomplices of Saul in killing the Gibeonites. Another clue is when God told David the reason for the famine, he said it was for Saul and his bloody house. Seems clearly to indicate that Saul didn't act alone. So these seven members of his family helped him murder these innocent Gideonites. Gibeonites. And we, we don't know how they were executed. It says they fell together. I don't know whether they were hung or pushed off a cliff or actually were executed first and then hung up. Um, the Gibeonites actually were, were hammered twice here. One, uh, they were harmed by the famine. They lived inside the land and they had had a bunch of their family members murdered. Now, if I had innocent family members murdered uh, and I waited 20 years for justice to be done, that's a long time to wait. So we look at our country, our culture, our world, and we go, there just ain't no justice. Or if it does show up, it shows up really, really late. You're right. In this world, there is a lot of injustice. In this world, there's a lot of unfairness. In this world, there's a lot of judges and juries who come to the wrong conclusions, who convict innocent people and let go guilty people. And you can let that make you crazy, or you can say, the judge of all the earth is coming. And when he comes, there's going to be a lot of cases retried. And you can't lie to this judge. Because he knows everything. So justice will be done. And when we look at the political system around the world and we look at wars and governments and you look at the injustice in the land, it's easy to lose perspective. What's really important is you keep your eyes on the king who is perfectly in control and he will bring justice in his time. Won't he? Okay? So these seven descendants of Saul are executed by the Gibeonites beginning a barley harvest. It's around probably April, May. Verse 10. And Rizpah, the daughter of Adriel, or Ahiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. So she sets up a tent. Sackcloth is pretty rough goat hair. And she's living out in this tent, and these seven bodies are strung up and hung up on public display. 
And she camps out and protects the bodies of her sons and nephews from wildlife. It was considered a huge disgrace for a corpse to be displayed by hanging. In the Jewish culture, that was dishonorable to the final degree. It was that you really never, ever, it was a curse, considered a curse to let a body be exposed to sundown, beyond sundown, and they're out here for weeks and months. And she camps out, protects the bodies from being eaten by beasts and birds. And what they're waiting on is the rain. Because until it rains, God is still, has them under judgment. We don't know when God sent the rain. The next rainy season wasn't due to show up till October. That was six months. So if you've got seven bodies hanging out for six months in the open air, um, I have no words. So, but if God decided to demonstrate his forgiveness earlier, he might have brought rain in May. We're not sure when that occurred. So she's, she's very faithful in protecting her sons and her nephews. Verse 11. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Beshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa, he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded, underline this phrase, and after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. Here's the principle. Willful sin hinders our prayers, but when we repent, God hears our prayers and blesses us. Willful sin hinders our prayers, but when we repent, God hears our prayers and blesses us. Psalm 66 says, if I cherish wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's interesting, sometimes God seems to hear our prayers quickly. Sometimes it seems like you're talking to yourself, doesn't it? Sometimes those prayers don't seem to go beyond the ceiling. And there may be lots of reasons for that, but one of the things to check is if I'm hanging on to, to sin in my life, if I've got sin in my life and I'm not willing to let God deal with it, if I'm arguing with God over it, if I'm trying to justify that sin, if God says, Brad Hannock, you go to so-and-so and reconcile your relationship, and I go, forget about it. It says God is not going to listen to Brad's prayers because my willful sin is hindering my relationship with God. It goes back to our prior point that your relationship with other people definitely impacts your relationship with God. So Rizpah, she's been out there for up to six months. She's honoring her deceased family member. She's extraordinarily devoted. She's not going to let him be dishonored by being eaten. And David watches her example, and he says, we need to put, bring closure to this. So he orders the proper burial of Saul and Jonathan. Remember, Saul and Jonathan were killed at Gilboa probably 15, 18, 15 years ago for sure. And they were taken from the city square where they were hung up by the Philistines and they were just thrown into a grave by a tamarisk tree. So he takes the bones out and he gives Saul and Jonathan and these seven a proper burial. 
And a proper burial in that era meant you always were buried in the family plot. Being buried next to your family was really, really, really important for a Jew. For you to be married in Shafter and you lived in Bakersfield was just unacceptable. You might have relatives in Shafter, but if your family plot was at Hillcrest, you wanted to be buried at Hillcrest. That was just part of staying connected, at least symbolically, with your family. So when it says they were buried in the tomb of their fathers, that's not just a phrase. That's a real commitment on the part of the Jewish culture that says it's closure. It's ongoing, at least symbolic connection with the family, right? And the nation now has been probably praying for a year that the, that the, that the rains will come. John encourages us to pray for rain all the time, which I'm very grateful for. And the rain hadn't come in three years because the sin of Saul, this unfinished murder, had polluted the land and it had separated Israel from God. And until those innocent murders were atoned for, God wasn't going to hear. Now, for you and I, we don't live in that world because Jesus has already paid the price for our sin. That's where the, when we read this, we go, wow, you know, if you murdered somebody, we took your head off, period. If you knock somebody's tooth out, we take your tooth out. That's a pretty rough world. There's no grace in that world. There's no forgiveness. There's no mercy. And yet we live in a world because of what Jesus did, where we can forgive because we have been forgiven. But the guilty are now punished for their sins. Justice is done. Sin is paid for. And God hears the prayers of the nation and ends the drought. So for us, I guess it's pretty clear. If there's known sin in your life, repent. Ask God to forgive you. Turn away from it. You would be amazed at how much God wants to do in our life, but we hang on to our sin and it it, it, it stops the river of life from coming into us. It really hinders the work that God wants to do. You cannot hold on to your sin and hold on to Jesus at the same time. You can't have to let one of them go. You can't hold it because Jesus ain't going to cohabitate with sin. If you want to be intimate with God, you cannot be intimate with sin. You know, 2 Chronicles 7.14, one of the most famous passages of the Old Testament, says what? If my people who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So you, we do four things. Humble, themselves, humble ourselves, pray, seek my face, turn from my wicked ways. Does that sound like repentance? Uh-huh. We do four things, then God's going to do three things. Then I will what? Hear from heaven, forgive their sin, Heal their land. Does this land of ours need healing? Is this place broken or what? It is remarkable. I've just been, I spent the last, I don't know, couple of weekends watching Ken Burns' Vietnam. And you're looking at all the demonstrations that went on 30, 40 years ago. And you're looking and going, man, the nation was really, really divided at that point in time. And it's pretty obvious we're at least that divided today. And we, as a nation, need God's healing. And you know something? That healing is not going to come place, going to take place at the ballot box. 
It's not going to come out of the judiciary. It's not going to come because you elect the right people. The healing this land needs, just like in David's day, is going to come because God's people humble themselves. It's our hanging on to our sin that is keeping the healing hand of God from this land. It's not the world. They're lost. God's message to them is real simple. Repent and be saved. If my people, who are called by my name, that's you and me, that's us Christians, if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, if we will seek his face like a lover seeks your face, right? If we will turn from our wicked ways, that's repentance. Then God will do all these things. And I think sometimes we come to God and we go, you know, uh, the nation needs healing. We're a mess. We're killing each other. We're arguing with each other. We're fighting with each other. We're going in debt. We're doing all this stupid stuff. God says, yeah, the solution to that is repentance. The solution to that is my people. You come back in right relationship with me, and I will work through you to accomplish what I want to do in the healing this land. Does that make sense? Let's summarize, and then I'll ask Tom. We'll have a few minutes for Q&A, and then Tom can come up. Here's the first one. Take sin seriously, because its toxic effects can last for generations. Take sin seriously, because its toxic effects can last for generations. Number two, pray before you promise because God judges promise breakers. Most of us should pray not just once, but maybe two or three or four times before we open our mouth and make promises, right? How you treat others impacts your own relationship with God. If you have a broken relationship with someone else, it will definitely hinder your relationship with God. Number four, the debt of sin must be paid in order for justice to be done. Either you accept Jesus' payment for your sins or you pay the debt yourself. By the way, I highly recommend you accept Jesus' payment. If you're going to pay for it yourself, it will take all eternity separated from God. And lastly, willful sin hinders our prayers. But when we repent, God hears our prayers and blesses us. Now that you know, do. I love you guys. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.